Hey friends, before the next episode, I wanted to share a bit more about my virtual recovery community called The Recovery Collective. For less than a cost of one therapy session per month, our members get access to workshops, group coaching with me, cook-alongs, yoga, recipes, meditations, and even a private Facebook community. It is seriously the most fun community in the eating disorder recovery world right now. If your eating disorder is making you feel isolated and alone, this place will lift your spirits and bring you the connection you're looking for. So I ask you to join all of us. Go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com or you can check out the link in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you inside the collective and enjoy this next episode. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Full and Thriving podcast. I am delighted to be with another guest today. Her name is Christina Johnson, and she is just a ray of sunshine this morning. Hello, Christina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for that introduction. Oh, you're so welcome. It's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to be here. Awesome. So for everyone listening, Christina and I have a topic that we want to share with you all today. And that is the topic of the moralization of food. But before we dive into that, I really wanted you, Christina, to share a little bit about your background and your journey and how you became the encouraging dietitian who you are today. Yeah. So I, like all human beings, have my own relationship with food. And in the process of like figuring that out, I knew growing up, I was like, I want to be a doctor. This is going to be great. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to become a doctor. And then I got to the end of high school and I was like, Ooh, wait a minute. I want to start my career before I'm 30. And I don't think that's going to work out if I go to school and become a doctor. And so I was like, well, I'm going to scrap the plan and figure something else out, which thank goodness it all worked out. But I took a career aptitude test of all things, right? Like a career aptitude test, which <laughs> don't knock until you try it. And I like looked at the list of things it gave me and none of them sounded interesting to me. I was like, oh no, what am I supposed to do with my life? And then the fun, the one at the bottom was dietitian. And I was like, what does a dietitian do? What? I don't even know what that is. So I like Googled it, realized what it was. And I was like, oh, those are the people my family always complain about. <laughs> cause I have different family members who will have chronic illness and they complain because the dietitian like doesn't really get them, doesn't understand them and provides them information or advice. that's not always helpful. Right. And so I was like, well, I think I can do that. And I, I think I'd be pretty good at it. So I went to school, doing my things, still has this really wonky relationship with food, but they're kind of disconnected in a way, kind of connected, kind of disconnected. 
And I finished college, finished my like undergrad. I'm going to apply for an internship because you have to do an internship before you become a dietitian. And I didn't get one. What? I know. And so I was like, oh no. Okay. So what do I do? Because I put all my eggs in my, this basket of like, I'm going to get my internship first time around. I'm going to go do it, become a dietitian. Like, it'll be great. And I didn't get it. So I was like, okay, girl, what are you going to do? And so I said, okay, well, I'll just go to grad school because I knew they were adding this requirement, which they are dragging this out, by the way. They were adding a requirement and they're like, okay, by this time, everyone who becomes a dietitian who sits for their exam has to have a master's degree. And I was like, y'all are not going to tell me that I can't take my exam because I don't have this master's degree. So I went and got master's. And in the process of getting my master's, I realized, oh, wait a minute. If I, if the only way to be a dietitian is to work in weight management or to work in a hospital, I don't know if this is what I want to do. Cause that's not really my, my thing. I don't, I don't enjoy that. At this point, I'd like done a lot of work on my own relationship with food. So I was in like pretty smooth cruising place. And so I was like, oh gosh, why would I do the opposite of the thing that like feels really good to me? Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, okay, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So I applied for an internship again. All right, girl, you're going to do this. You'll figure it out. It'll be okay. So I applied for the internship and I cannot make this up. So I apply for it and there's like a waiting period. And the day that the results come out, I pulled my car that morning. Oh my God. <laughs> That's awful. Right. So I totaled my car and then my friend like takes me to the coffee shop with another friend of mine and we're sitting there and I open it up and it's like, you didn't get an internship. Oh, that is a double whammy for the day. And I just sat there and I was like, ah, all right. And I like closed out of the tab. And my friend was like, are you okay? And I was like, I totaled my car this morning. What's a no? Yeah. <laughs> I've already seen that screen before once in my life. Like, eh. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? But there's like a, like a second round that you can do. Yeah. And so I did the second round. I got an internship. And I ended up having to move to Oklahoma, but we don't talk about that here. <laughs> but in the process of me moving to Oklahoma, I, part of my internship, I got to rotate at an eating disorder facility. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, these are my people. I love this. And while I was there, right, I'd already finished my master's. I had an entire like semester where I was just twiddling my thumbs, waiting for my internship to start. Wow. So I started my Instagram. Wow. Okay. So that's how the Instagram got started. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. What a cool story. It's almost like that gap was meant to happen because that's when you have the time to create the magical content that you do. And now you reach so many people. I know. I sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, as much as I didn't want to write a second, because they made me write a second like paper. Mm -hmm. I didn't really want to write that second paper, but it ended up being really helpful by giving me all that extra free time. Because otherwise I would have just started my internship and not really had any energy to put towards doing my Instagram. Right. Oh, that's amazing. That is so inspiring. I hope people listen because I know some younger folks listen to this and are probably in school right now. And it's really crappy when you get rejected from an internship or a job opportunity and being open to what happens is so important, you know, and then recognizing that what comes to you sometimes is meant to happen. At least that's kind of how I believe it to be. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I tell this to my clients all the time now, because I'm like, guys, failing is not nearly as bad as we think it is. Mm, Yes. 
right in that moment, I felt like I had failed. Like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna, I'm never gonna be a dietitian. I'm so dumb. I'm so like absolutely negative beliefs about myself. And I sit here today and I'm like, oh, thank goodness I didn't get that internship the first time around Mm -hmm. because those rotations wouldn't have gotten me to an eating disorder facility. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And those were your people, as you said. And I really do feel like it's a totally different job than your typical dietitian who's actually, I mean, I'm not going to speak for every dietitian, but weight management is a totally different ballgame than recovery, which is we're going to learn to love food again and listen to our bodies and embrace the size that we're meant to be at. It's a scarier, intimidating place to start, but the relationship with food has potential to be so beautiful. Yes. And it's so applicable to so many other areas of life. Like the skills that you learn in the process of like rediscovering joy in your relationship with food can literally be picked up and applied so many other places in life on how to rediscover joy in these other areas of your life, how to set boundaries in other areas of your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It really can be applied. I love the skills in recovery because they turn into gifts that you can Mm -hmm. bring for a lifetime. And it actually changes who you are as a person. That is a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. Let's you're, ugh, it was a delight to hear. Let's move towards our topic that I want to bring to the audience today. You had a lovely podcast episode about this, and that is the moralization of food. So could you please share with those listening what you mean by that? Yeah, I love this topic because every time I start talk to people about it, they're always like, Whew, okay, hold on. Wait, what did you say to me? <laughs> because moralization, right? This sort of belief that something can be good or bad implies that there's an absolute good, Mm. right? Moralization comes from religion, right? It comes from spirituality. And so if we take this sort of belief that there has to be an absolute good, how do you apply that to the food? Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. With diet culture, which is something we've all grown up with, we've taken on these beliefs. Yes. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, how do I apply this concept of an absolute good when all food has flaws, right? I'm in the process of growing my own vegetables. And like, sometimes your things don't come out perfectly beautiful. Sometimes they come out a little wonky shaped or sometimes you plant something and the crop doesn't grow anything, right? Like, how do you apply this concept of absolute good if even between the same set of bell peppers, they don't all have the exact same vitamin C content because that's just how life works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like we, we have these categories, good and bad foods, but even within those categories of good foods, they're all flawed within that, which is an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. And so if we take that step back and we're like, and the other part of something being good or bad, it means that it has to follow a code of conduct. Mm. Food can't follow a code of conduct. <laughs> It can't, (laughs) No, it can't break the law. It can't talk back. Yeah. We're basically prescribing these personalities to food. Like this is a bad food and we're assigning it moral conduct, but it has no ability to make decisions or behave in certain ways. Not really. No. I loved that on your podcast episode, you said that there is an inherent choice in moralization and food cannot make any choices 
<laughs> it cannot. Your tomato can't decide to just like randomly not be a tomato. It's a tomato and it's going to stay a tomato. It might rot, which is different in that sense, but like it's not going to be any less of a tomato. Mm-hmm. It's not going to randomly be like, you know what? I think I'm going to go rob a bank today. But like it's a tomato. It, it can't do that. <laughs> so food is inherently neutral and we are all putting these ideas, placing these concepts and associations onto food. Yes. And by virtue of us placing the concept on the food, it reflects back to us. Because if I'm eating the bad thing, I must therefore be bad. Mm -hmm. And that's where the guilt comes in. I think that's what I see at least. Mm -hmm. The guilt, the shame of like, I'm trying to be a better person. Why do I keep eating these bad things? Mm. Or on the contrary, this sort of moral superiority right? That's higher than now because I only eat good things. How could you eat those bad things? Yeah. Yeah. It definitely gives people a chance to feel better than others when they are eating this fresh whole diet. They can put themselves on this pedestal and, and I see it, they feel higher than now. And that is not how you determine your worth, (laughs) like how you should be comparing yourself to others because food is the same food isn't accessible to everyone. And that is the thing. I've had clients who are like, well, I only really believe in whole, clean food. And that's what I want. And it sounds so moralistic. And then when I say, well, just remember, not everyone has this privilege to access all of this food. And then they immediately go, well, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I'm just really upset that not everyone can have this. And I'm like, oh God, it's frustrating. So close, but you missed the point. Yeah. (laughs) So close. close. I think the, the real thing here is that part of our autonomy is the right to choose what we want to eat. Right. Accessibility is important. I want you to have access to all of the things, but it is not my business to tell you what to eat. Mm, So true. Right. Like, again, I I want all the people to have access to everything because I think that only makes sense. Why are you forced based on your zip code or your median income to not have access to the things that you want or need or deem important in your life? But the next person has access to them. And then you're being because of where you live, how much money you make, you're being villainized because of the food choices you're making, even though you you can only make so many choices if you don't have a grocery store. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's a lot of out of your control. You know, there's a standard, the standard of diet culture is set pretty high and we can't always expect everyone to just be able to reach for those foods or access those foods, go to those grocery stores, have the income to be able to afford that food. The disposable income and the disposable time. Because let us not forget that if something is fresh, whole, clean, raw, whatever, you have to cook it unless you're eating it raw, which like, okay, but you have to cook it. You have to take time to cook it, to season it. Whereas if something is frozen or canned, you just kind of like pop it, cook it for a few seconds. You could toss it in the microwave, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's an extra prohibitive. And then you have to think how long is it going to last? It is fresh. It is going to go bad. It is going to decline in quality and taste and flavor, right? Yeah. And it's so liberating when I hear dietitians like yourself talk about how okay it is to get frozen food and canned food and 
pre-cooked food because I don't have that kind of time to, to cook beautiful meals. And I don't really like it all the time either. I'm not like a huge fan. Even if I had the time, that doesn't mean I want to spend my energy that way. (laughs) It's so true. I'm like, okay, uh, I guess I'll buy these fresh vegetables, but there is a 30% chance that they might get lost in the back of my fridge and go bad. Cause I don't Just like before eat. we hopped on this call, I was eating freezer waffles for breakfast. Cause I was like, well, this is convenient. This works. Like, yes. Convenient foods are my jam. Absolutely. There is absolutely nothing wrong with them. Right. Like they were made for a reason. People have schedules they need to attend to. They have mobility things that they need to work out. Right. Like making food accessible and inclusive is so important. And the thought that people should just always eat this one particular way and it makes them a good person is so short-sighted mm-hmm. in terms of like, that is a very individualistic, like I become a better person because of what I eat. doesn't matter how you treat people. doesn't matter how you engage with the community. It's just based on what I'm eating. Mm. And that's not real. No. Yeah. So could you share a little bit more about the good and bad foods and the associations people have with them? Yeah. Even if it's not this sort of like, and I'm, I'm going to preface this with, you might not have this association at the front of your mind, right? You have one version of the association, but there's a more deep rooted part of this association. Because oftentimes what we associate is this sort of like fresh, raw, like fresh veggies, lean meat, whole grain, right? We associate that with this sort of thin person. The piece that's missing with that is that person is probably a thin, white, affluent person, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? We just see the thin, we sort of neglect the fact that there's also the white, affluent piece connected to it. Typically cisgender, right? And then we think, yeah, lots of privilege, right? And then we think of this convenient, packaged food, typically referred to as processed, right? But keep in mind, all food is processed unless you're eating your apple on the tree. (laughs) it is processed. (laughs) We think of that as, okay, well, this person that's eating that is fat, right? They are in a larger body. The other parts to that are they are probably poor, working class, have several marginalizations attached to their lived experience. Mm -hmm. And that is really something I hope people listening to this podcast start to see when they're moralizing their food is that it is rooted in a lot of privilege. Yes. Cause again, it's that sort of individual piece of, if I distance myself from that, then I move out of it and then I'll have to deal with it. There's this quote by Audre Lorde that I love, and I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm doing this based on a paraphrase of the quote. And essentially the quote is if in my ability, in my process to liberate myself, I oppressed someone else. I wasn't liberated. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so true though. And so I sort of look at it through that lens of, is it really liberating if I'm actively oppressing someone else by saying that that food is bad and therefore they are bad by eating it? No one gets set free with that. Yeah. It is a disservice to label foods because we're labeling the people who eat them. And that's not okay. We want to neutralize food, Mm -hmm. which is another thing I wanted to talk to you about today. Okay. So... I thought it was really interesting in your podcast episode where you said this quote, and I want you to explain this. Okay. I want you to explain this. You said you can have this food six times a day for the rest of your life 
forever. You bring this up to clients and they look at you like you're a crazy lady. Absolutely. You can have whatever that thing is six times a day, every single day for the rest of forever. <laughs> I say, and every time I say that, some they look at me like I'm crazy. And I say this because let's really think about this, right? Use myself as an example because I live with myself every single day. So I love chocolate. Like I love chocolate. I keep usually at least six types of chocolate on hand at all times, all year round. And it increases depending on how I'm feeling, but it never really goes below six. I could say to myself, okay, Christina, I can have chocolate six times a day, every single day for the rest of forever. And at one point in my relationship with food, I would be like, girl, you are out of control. <laughs> right? Right. Saying that now, my like, I'm trying to maintain my like facial expression because I'm really thinking like, ooh, chocolate six times a day. I know. It's a lot of chocolate. Because it sounds boring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But if it's that neutral to me, it will sound boring because it's the same flavor profile. It's chocolate. I know what to expect. It's chocolate. Like it might change a little bit if it's like cocoa puffs versus like a peanut butter cup. But realistically, it's still chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you go about neutralizing food. And I try to say this to my clients is the reason why you are salivating over that piece of chocolate and you're obsessing over that piece of chocolate is that you're not making it fully accessible to you every day. If you gave yourself full permission to have that piece of chocolate as much as you wanted, whenever you wanted, you're not going to think that highly of chocolate anymore. (laughs) No, no, you won't. And And I know this to be true because my clients only ever ask me that question about something that they deem bad. No one has ever asked me, Christina, are you sure I'm allowed to have fruit six times a day, every single day for the rest of forever? Mm. Right. So it's something they've never allowed themselves to have six times a day for the rest of their life forever. Yeah. And realistically speaking, you're going to get bored. Trust me, bodies are so wise in that, that flavor profile is not going to change, but more importantly, that nutrient profile is not going to change. Mm. And your body is going to say, I need another set of nutrients than just the chocolate. Mm. I, I, I need something different. I need some different vitamins and different minerals. So you will find that chocolate to be less appetizing. doesn't mean you like it less. It just doesn't sound very good in that moment. And something else sounds so much better because that is the nutrient set that your body is asking for. Mm-hmm. And that's really where intuition starts. It's trusting that your body is going to ask for the nutrients it needs and you don't have to overthink it as much as you've been thinking about it. Yeah. No, the, I said this to a client yesterday, I think. And I I said to them, the more that you try to prepare for this thing, for your body to do this thing, the less chance you give your body to do the thing. Wow. Very interesting. Right. The more you try to prepare for your body to like, because I've had clients who are like, Christina, why am I not craving vegetables yet? Like, okay, well, if you keep trying to force yourself to crave them, you're just never going to crave them because you're giving them to yourself, right? Like focus on the thing that you're actually craving, eat that. And then the other things will follow. They will come along. Yes. First of all, you are not going to develop a deficiency in 24 hours. If that were the case, we would all have some sort of deficiency at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 So like, yeah. don't give me that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, 
helpful to hear you share this because so many people have this fear that when they allow themselves to eat the food that they've been loving, they're not going to be able to stop. And what you're saying is once your body gets bored of it, it's going to want something else. I think that's a fear that a lot of people have that if they allow themselves to start eating something, they're never going to stop. I'm using that with all of my clients and all different eating disorders mm-hmm. in anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, OSFED, yes. OSFED, right? Like all of the different diagnoses, it always comes back to, are you sure I can be trusted with this? Mm. And every time I tell them, of course you can be trusted with that. Your body has done all of this work to keep you alive up until this point. I think it'll be okay if you go ahead and let it have some chocolate. Oh, I like the way you put that because your body is always working the best it can to support you. And we often think it's working against us. We think that it's it's plotting against us, it's scheming, but in reality, it's literally keeping you alive every day. So why would, if it didn't like you, it wouldn't be keeping you alive every day. I mean. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, so real. Well, I love that you explained that. So one last question before I let you go is, mm-hmm. how would you recommend someone starts to detach from this moralization of food? I think the first thing is to have awareness of the sort of thought patterns that you have around food. So oftentimes our thoughts occur so quickly, the conversation in our head that we're not really, we're passively like attending to it because it happens so quickly and so often. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes I will encourage my clients to write the conversation down like get it on paper or I have a whiteboard in my office. So I will like have them tell me the first thought and then we'll go back and forth and I will color code it for them based on how it's coming out. Mm. And then we sort of have a conversation around like, "Mm, which of this sounds like you, which of this doesn't to sort of create that differentiation. Cause once you have awareness of the conversation, then it becomes easier to interrupt the conversation Mm -hmm. and interrupting that conversation oftentimes looks like having like an, I think of it as like a catchphrase of like, oh, no, all food is good food. Oh, no, all food is neutral. Mm -hmm. I can have all the things that I want. Nope. No need to label that, right? Like stopping your, whatever thought process is happening. Oh, no, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really helpful piece of advice because it's making sure you don't go down that rabbit hole. You have that mantra that you truly believe that you can stick to, or, you know, you want to believe it. So you're going to use it as an interrupter and almost like a boundary. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Brilliant. I think that's great. And I think that's a great place for us to leave everyone today is just think of what mantra you can use as that moralization disruptor. You know, all food is good food. Food is fuel. What's your favorite one? Do you have a favorite? I think the one that I say the most often is all food is food and it provides me something. Oh, what a relief. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, my last comment on that, which it makes me really happy yeah. that it provides me something. That is the thing I want everyone to figure out today is even that food that you've been demonizing, it provides you something, whether it's energy, straight up energy, fuel, some vitamins, some minerals, It can be bare minimum, but all food provides you something. 
let us not forget joy. Sometimes eating something, Ooh. we do it just because it makes us happy. Yes. Oh, the emotional component of what food provides is abundant as well. So I love that you said that. All right. Well, Christina, it's been a true joy to speak with you today. I appreciate all of your wisdom and knowledge that you've brought to this podcast. And everyone listening, I did want to let you know that Christina will be guiding the Recovery Collective through a workshop in November on intuitive eating and eating disorders. So Christina, I'm going to be seeing you again and I'm so excited. Me too. (laughs) Awesome. And everyone listening, if you want to be a part of that workshop, definitely sign up before November. Christina, have an amazing day. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You have a great day as well. Awesome. All right.